Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would have your hand upon this time. Lord, as we come to this passage, I pray that you would prepare our hearts that we might be able to understand and absorb and rightly respond to that which we read. Father, I pray that you would take this time and that you would use it significantly in each of our lives. God, that you would impact us, that you would change us, that you would draw us close to yourself. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, that I might be able to speak your words and that your people might be able to hear your voice. Have your hand upon this time. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we will be entering into a passage of Scripture that is sacred. Here's what I mean when I say that. We know that that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God himself, as, as Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture... Now, when he says prophecy of Scripture here, he doesn't just mean uh, those things within God's Word that speak to future events, but rather all of Scripture itself, or whatever it is that God speaks to us, that all of Scripture that it does not come from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. No prophecy was produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God, from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we have in Scripture is not man's thoughts about God, but rather... It is God's message to mankind, God's message to each of us. There is no passage, there is no part that has its origin in man or in man's thoughts, but rather it is God's word. As Paul writes to Timothy, all of Scripture is God-breathed. So what do I mean when I say that this morning's passage is somehow uniquely sacred? Well, what I mean is this, that the scene that unfolds before us shows us things that are almost too holy for us to understand, almost too holy for us to comprehend. It shows us a scene that, that honestly we should be careful to comment upon and that should quickly move us to worship. When we understand in whatever way we are able that which we read here, we must first confess our inability to truly comprehend it. So I feel that I must be cautious in saying too much about something that is simply beyond human understanding. Secondly, we must realize that the most appropriate response here is not commentary, Not even agreement or analysis, but rather it is simply this, it is worship. There are things in Scripture to obey. 
There are things in Scripture that we must understand. There are things in Scripture which we, we must proclaim to the world around us. But there are also things in Scripture to which our best response is simply to worship. Simply to worship. Well, together, let's turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, as this morning we pick up where Jesus and his disciples come to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus awaits his betrayal, his arrest, his torture, and his crucifixion. Our text for this morning is Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32 and carrying through verse 42. Will you stand with me? I'll read our passage. You can follow along. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. There, Mark writes, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray again. Father, again. Again, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts. That you would allow us in some small measure to comprehend the things that we have read. Lord, that you would free our hearts to respond to you. That you would open our minds to comprehend. And that you would accomplish in this time what you desire. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. My hope this morning as we look at this passage is that we will understand what took place and why Jesus responds as he does. My hope is that we will see Jesus' submission to the Father. We will see his great love for us and that in response we will worship him because he alone is worthy of our worship. 
and that we will imitate Him, and that when we face overwhelming fear and pain, that we too will choose to submit to the Father. That we too will learn to come to Him in prayer. Well, let's remember very quickly here the context in which these things take place. We have come here in Mark chapter 14 to the end of Jesus' time with His disciples. Think about that. For over, over three years, He has led them and He has taught them. He has lived life with them. He's taught them about themselves. The man's greatest need is to turn from sin and to turn to God. The message that Jesus has declared clear back as early as Mark chapter 1 was this, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus says, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus says, turn away from your sin and turn to God. Jesus says, it's time. It's time to repent, to change your direction, and to join God's kingdom. Jesus also taught them about himself. Jesus said to them, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus says very clearly here that he is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Him. Jesus says very clearly that He came not just to lead, not just to teach, and not just to show them God, but the reason that no one can come to the Father except through Him is that He also came to die. He came to die in our place. He had warned his disciples about this over and over again. He came to die in our place as a sacrifice for our redemption. He came that he might take the punishment for our sin. And what was that punishment? It was to bear the righteous wrath of God to bear the righteous wrath of God, to endure God's wrath toward our sin. Do you struggle with the thought of a loving God dishing out wrath? Understand, love and wrath are tied together. Love and wrath are tied together. If God truly loves, then He must he must express wrath toward that which harms those whom he loves. His wrath is his protection of us. It is his justice toward us. And so the more he loves, and the worse this evil is, the greater his wrath must be. A lack of wrath truly is nothing more than apathy. And apathy truly is the absence of love. If God truly loves us, then He must express wrath. If God is in reality loving and good, then He 
He must respond to evil. He must. Is this not the skeptic's great question? That if God is good, then, then why is there so much evil? What is God doing about the evil in this world? Well, the, the answer is, is really quite simple. You and I, we, all of mankind, we have rebelled against God. We are the source of evil. And God has condemned our evil. He has taken action against it. He has condemned our sin, and He will bring His wrath to bear against it. But because He is loving, because He is merciful, He is patient in His judgment. Ezekiel chapter 33. The Lord says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God says. He, he is merciful even in judgment. Even in his righteous judgment, he, he does not desire to destroy, but he is patient with us, wanting all to come to repentance how different he is from us. Listen to him plead with us. Ezekiel says, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? God is merciful. He's merciful. So, if God is good, and he is, then he must respond to evil. Even though he loves us, he has to. He has to do something about our sin. And so, out of both his matchless love and his uncompromising justice, he sent his son. He sent his son, as John has so famously put it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is what we see before us this morning. The Savior. Here in Mark chapter 14, the eternal Son of God facing the reality of bearing God's wrath for our sin. Let's begin to look upon the scene. Verse 32. Verse 32 tells us, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a garden, as, as John chapter 18 tells us, which likely had in it an olive press. Uh, that's what the word Gethsemane means. It just means olive press. And as Luke 22 tells us, it was in this place just outside the city wall of Jerusalem. It was in this place that Jesus often stayed whenever it was that he would come to visit Jerusalem. And so it was a place that would have been familiar to his disciples. Familiar as well to Judas, who was on his way to betray him there. And so, having celebrated the Passover together for their final time, they now arrive at their resting place, likely in the very late hours of the night. 
And partway through verse 32, we read, Jesus tells his disciples, sit here while I pray. Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. As he has been accustomed to do when he retreats for a time of prayer, Jesus chooses isolation. He chooses a quiet spot. He leaves his disciples and the distraction of the group behind him. Now, I am sure that Jesus and his disciples prayed together often, that he regularly led them in prayer. But this day, in this situation, as he has done before, Jesus takes only Peter, James, and John with him. And so the four of them go a little further into the garden. There we read in verse 33, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. These three, Peter, James, and John, The same three had been with him there upon the mountain of the transfiguration. They were there when God's glory was revealed. And now they are together again with him in another moment of glory revealed. But this is a a glory of another sort. The transfiguration was the glory of God revealed from within human flesh. But this, the agony of Gethsemane, is the glory of God shown through the perfect submission of the Son to the Father. This glory is the glory of the immeasurable love of God for lost sinners revealed. These same disciples follow Jesus up the mountain of transfiguration where his appearance changed as as the glory of God shone out from within him. And now here within the garden, they, they witness another transformation. As the one who had just told them, take heart for I have overcome the world, as he is transformed, becoming greatly distressed and troubled. Let's not understate what it says that Jesus was experiencing here. These words speak of a mixture of bewilderment, fear, of anxiety, uncertainty, and all in overwhelming and unmanageable proportions. So much so that Jesus, and and understand this is not the statement of one who is prone to drama, so much so that Jesus says that his soul is so sorrowful that it is even to the point of death. What is it? What is it that has taken Jesus to the very brink? What darkness encompasses him? Certainly, it, it couldn't just merely be the the prospect of physical death. Oh, many before him and and many who came after faced death calmly and without despair. And yet, certainly, it was death. It was death that brought Jesus such travail. But why? 
Understand this. Death for Christ was something different than it is for us. Jesus was not merely going to his death. He was the Lamb of God who was going to bear the penalty of the sin of all mankind. The wrath of God was about to be spent upon him. About this, Jonathan Edwards wrote, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he would be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight overwhelmed him. It may help us to understand if we remember that in Scripture, the word for death is a, a word that most literally and simply means separation. For us, the separation of our body from our spirit. But for Christ, primarily it meant the separation for the first time ever from God the Father. You see, death to us is simply the continuation of a separation that we already know. Because of our sin, we live separated from God until we are redeemed. And we only begin to taste fellowship with God once we are saved. But for Jesus, it was the introduction of something that he had never experienced. He had eternally existed with the Father and the Spirit in perfect and unbroken unity. But now, in this moment, Jesus finds himself about to embrace God's wrath for our sin. And because of that, he was about to experience estrangement with the Father. Christ would, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he would become sin for us. Listen to what Paul says, for our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin. To be sin. He who knew no sin. And why is this? It is so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He would, as Galatians chapter 3 puts it, take our curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Causing the Savior to cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, my friends, is the terror that Christ faced. It is something that, that you and I, I think simply we cannot fathom it. It, it is something we cannot really begin to understand. We have never experienced that which Christ was about to lose. So how can we understand or even measure his grief? How can we comprehend the pain and, and the terror of this loss? Quite simply, we can't. 
If you think that you, you understand the grief of Christ here in the garden, you, you don't get it. You just don't get it. But if you think that there is no way for us to measure it, if you understand that there is no way for us to comprehend what it is that he is experiencing, then you're beginning to get it a little. Just understand this. No higher price has ever been paid. No greater anguish has ever been felt than that which Christ paid for you. That which he faced in order to redeem you to himself. For you were bought. You were redeemed by Christ, as Peter says. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. And so here in this garden, facing this incomprehensible thing, Jesus asks Peter, James, and John to remain here and watch, to stay near, to watch with him. Oh, not to watch for Judas, not in order to warn Jesus of his approach, but rather just to watch with him, to be with him, just to simply be with him in the midst of all that he is experiencing. Take note of this, friends. When you are with someone who is in great distress, who is grieving, who is hurting, who is in great despair, your greatest aid to them quite often is just simply to be with them. Just to be with them. You don't have to know what to say. Unless you're so dunderheaded that you just feel that you have to say something. You don't have to, to know what to do. There is nothing special you have to do. You just need to be near. You just need to be with them. Jesus asked these three, remain here and watch. Just stay near me. In verse 35, we read, going on a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Take note of two things here both founded upon what Jesus prays. Notice first the perfect submission of Jesus to the Father. The perfect submission of Jesus to the Father. And secondly, the unfathomable love of Christ for lost sinners. Both shown by the fact that he was willing to take this cup. Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will, showing his perfect submission to the will of the Father. Now here, Jesus, who is God in human flesh, he submits himself to the Father, not because he was the lesser, 
but because it was his role. Here, as always, Jesus lives what he preaches. Think back to Mark chapter 8. There Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that is exactly what Jesus does here. He puts himself aside. He denies himself. He takes up his cross quite literally. And he submits himself to the Father. Understand this. There is dignity and righteousness found in godly submission. Whether it be Christ submitting to the Father, choosing obedience, or each of us obeying Christ, and so submitting one to another. Wives submitting to husbands, children to parents, citizens to their leaders. It is honorable and it is God-honoring. Secondly, Jesus prays that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. In other words, Jesus is saying, if there is any other way, if there is any other way to accomplish this goal, if there is any other way to redeem lost sinners, then let this pass from me. But if not, if not, if this is the only way, Jesus says, then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. As Jesus says elsewhere, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Folks, we can be assured of the love of the Savior for us. He was willing to do whatever it would take to redeem us from our sin. He was willing to suffer beyond our comprehension in order to save us. This isn't theory. This isn't just theology. This isn't myth. He loves you. The Savior loves you. Secondarily, notice as well an example for us to follow. When we are weighed down, when we are overwhelmed, when we are suffocating in anxiety and fear and doubt, first, we can notice that it is a good thing to bring others close, to draw others close, and not to close them out, not to distance ourselves, but in, in that time of anxiety, to draw others close, to draw those who will pray for you, who will be with you, to draw them close to you. But then, but then we must be careful not to depend upon them, not to, to put our hope in them, but rather to put our hope in God. Draw people close, but put our hope in God. Seek Him. Look to the Lord. Seek His face. Pour out our heart to Him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress in my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield in the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. 
The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. It's the Lord, not those around us who will prove faithful and true. And so we must put our hope in Him, in Him alone. And when we do that, it allows us to be gracious to those around us when they fail. Look at verse 37. And Jesus came and found them sleeping. Here in the moment of his greatest need, in the hour in which he asked them to simply to wait with him, to watch with him, they slumber. They slumber. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus came to his disciples who had just sworn moments earlier that they would die before they would abandon him, only to find that mere sleep had quickly overpowered them. They had abandoned him for nothing more than the sweetness of slumber. As Jesus noted, their spirit wanted to faithfully watch with him, but their flesh, their human frame, was weak. They needed sleep. Folks, don't we, don't we experience this daily? The weakness of our flesh, despite the desire of our spirit? Jesus says that the way to overcome this weakness is to watch and to pray. I think that we could almost paraphrase what Jesus says here like this. He says, guys, guys, when you're trying to watch and pray, if you don't want to fall asleep, then what you need to do is actually begin to watch and pray. Start praying. You see, thinking about praying, listening to others pray, those are great ways to fall asleep. But if you actually want to pray and you actually want to watch, if you want to try to stay alert, you, know, you probably shouldn't lay down in bed and pull up the covers snug and tight. If you actually begin to pray, if you begin to pour out your heart to the Lord, you'll do well. Take the weakness of your flesh into account. Take the weakness of your flesh into account. And not in order to accommodate it, but rather to counteract it. Are you prone to, to falling asleep while you pray? I suggest maybe you might want to get out of bed. Do you fall asleep as you, as you sit and you pray? Then you might want to stand up. At least when you fall down, you'll wake up again. <laughs> Do whatever it takes. I mean, get some snakes, set them loose in your house. I guarantee you, you will be alert and in prayer continually. Do whatever it takes. Use a list if that will help you keep focused. We are so easily distracted. Our minds are cluttered by so many other things. 
Set alarms to remind you to pray. Our technology rules over it, doesn't it? It, it, it just it, it seems like our phones are the masters of our lives. They're not tools that we use. Use that technology for something good. Pray with others on a regular basis in order to keep it real, in order to keep yourself real. You know, it's so easy for me to pray that I would turn from my sin when it's just me and Jesus. Oh, but if my wife hears that prayer, I've got to do something about it. I've got to take action. There's accountability there in that moment. Hey, guys, when I pray, I even pray about my praying. I use a prayer list because my mind, it, it, it flits here and there and all over the place. And the first thing on that list is just the word focus. And it's not a command that I seek to follow. It, it, it's, it's a prayer. I'm pleading with the Lord. Help me, God. I, I'm pathetic and I need you to help me to focus. Keep my mind here. Make this time a time that matters. Lead me, Lord, as I pray. Verse 39, And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Jesus goes and he prays, and he comes back and finds his disciples sleeping, and so he goes again to prayer. In fact, Jesus goes to prayer three times. Notice this. Three times Jesus goes to prayer. And three times he comes back to face the very same situation. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. He is still standing in the shadow of the cross. His disciples are still sleeping. And his betrayer is still approaching. His circumstances, they don't change. But here's what does happen. Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us this, that Jesus, as he seeks the Father's face, is there ministered to by the Father. Luke chapter 22, verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. The Father sends an angel to minister to him. The Father ministers to his Son. And folks, he will do something greater for us. He doesn't send an angel to minister to us in our time of need. But his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit comes to minister to us, to encourage our hearts. Folks, when we come to the Father with a heart of submission... When we come submitted to his will, when we come persistently, when we learn to wait upon the Lord, though our circumstances may sometimes remain unaltered, yet he will, he will come and minister to us. We need to learn that sort of persistence. We need to learn to go to the Lord day after day, time and again, even when our circumstances remain the same. Knowing that the Lord will meet us there, that his Holy Spirit will encourage and strengthen and empower us.
Verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. Despite his disciples' efforts, Jesus was alone. He was alone in this. But he was alone with the Father. And that was enough. That was enough. Having the Father's presence with him was enough. Alexander McLaren writes this. He says, darkness ringed him round, but there was a rift in it right overhead. Prayer was his refuge, as it must be ours. The soul that can cry, Abba, Father, does not walk in unbroken night. His example teaches us what our own sorrows should also teach us, to betake ourselves to prayer when the spirit is desolate. We too can go to the Father. We too can seek him in our own hour of darkness. We too can find hope from heaven. And so, having gone three times to prayer, finally Jesus returns again to his disciples, finding them still sleeping. Verse 41, he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. His time has come. It is settled. He will pay the price. His betrayer is approaching. It is time for his disciples to awaken. It's time for us to awaken as well, is it not? To awaken and to as best we can to comprehend and to respond to what it is that the Savior has done to us by worshiping him. This morning, having looked at this passage, it is my hope, it is my prayer that in some small way you will more deeply understand what it is that we have read, that you will know Jesus more, that you will see and that you will want to emulate his submission to the Father, and that you will see and that you will begin to absorb the fact of his his unthinkably great love for us. And I hope that you will desire to imitate him, that when you face overwhelming fear, and pain, and anxiety, that you will choose to draw others close, but even more that you will seek the Lord with a heart of submission, that you will draw near to him, that you will come to him in prayer and that you will come to him again and again waiting for him to minister to your heart. And I hope that in response to all of this, in response to the Savior who paid the highest price that could be paid, that you will worship him. For he and he alone is worthy. Stand with me while I pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for that which we cannot fully understand. We thank you that you chose to save us. Though the price is so incomprehensibly high. Lord, we we can't even understand what it is that you gave. And yet so willingly, so great is your love for us. God, open our eyes. Soften our heart that we we might see your great love and that we might respond to it. Though we are undeserving, sinners living in rebellion against you, and yet you came and you bore the penalty for that same sin. God, soften our hearts so we might respond to you. God, that those who, who even today are walking independent of you, who are separated from you, that they would surrender. they would receive this gift of love. God, for those of us who have given ourselves into your care, Lord, that you would remind us afresh, that you would help us to comprehend, Lord, that you would stir our hearts we might rightly respond to you, that you would receive all our worship, and all of our thanks. We thank you for this time and for your great love. In Jesus' name.